Hello and welcome to another episode of Evolving Prisons with me, Kaden Carey. Just a quick reminder that a bonus episode of Evolving Prisons is also released every month. You can subscribe to the bonus episodes for $2.99 per month by hitting the link in the show notes of this podcast episode. My guest today is Dr. Scott Bonn. Dr. Bonn is a criminologist. He provides expert commentary for a number of high-profile true crime TV shows and documentaries. He is also the author of Why We Love Serial Killers, and he's an expert on criminal behaviour. In this episode, Dr. Bond tells us the answer to questions such as, what are some of the early signs that someone might be a serial killer? Why does society seem fascinated by them? What rationality do they construct to justify their crimes? And can they be rehabilitated, or is prison merely containing them? I hope you enjoy this conversation. So, Scott, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. You're obviously an expert on serial killers, which is a very interesting field of study. So tell me, what got you into that? Where did your fascination for studying serial killers come from? Well, it goes all the way back to um, really childhood. I was always interested in scary things, monsters, monster movies when I was a kid, and I was always attracted to crime. And I used to love to play that game Clue. I was a big fan of that, and I love Sherlock Holmes stories. So I've, I've always been interested in that. And I think in a broader sense, I've, I've also always been interested in the human mind and the decisions that people make, both good and bad. And so when I went off to college, when I was 18, I was sort of torn. I was drawn toward like consumer marketing behavior, why people make decisions to buy certain products, Crest toothpaste versus Colgate toothpaste. But then I was also interested in the criminal mind. And initially I went with the advertising because uh, my mother told me that's where the money is. <laughs> and um, for about 20 years, I was fairly successful in the advertising world. And I actually, for a while, ended up working at NBC Television Network in New York. And I was responsible for marketing and promotion there. And part of my responsibility was the news. And there's an old adage in journalism that you may have heard, which is, if it bleeds, it leads, meaning that the more sensationalized something is, a story, the more people are going to gravitate toward it and tune in, like, like flies to uh, honey, you know. And what I noticed is that was particularly true with certain very gory stories like the O.J. Simpson murder trial and the Menendez brothers and Johnny Versace murder, which I was actually down in Miami when that, when that happened. And I realized that the media and society, in some ways, glamorize these individuals and turn them into what I call celebrity monsters. And I talk about that in my book, Why We Love uh, Serial Killers. It's a media-fueled phenomenon. So after about 25 years in the uh, advertising world, I got this itch to go back to um, school and study the dark side of the human condition. And so I studied criminal justice. I got a master's degree in criminal justice, and then I got a PhD in criminology, and I began teaching. I began teaching courses about crime and forensics, and I gravitated towards serial killers, I think because of the fact that there's this incredible fascination. My students would just light up when I said, we're going to talk about Ted Bundy, or we're going to talk about Son of Sam. And this got me thinking, and here's where the, my old advertising mind and the criminology mind combined. I said, you know what? I'm going to look into this phenomenon. I want to understand why we as humans are drawn to these, these individuals. And so I ended up corresponding with, with some serial killers like Dennis Rader, Bind, Torture, Kill, BTK, as well as David Berkowitz, the son of Sam. And these two are some of the most infamous you know, serial killers of all time. And what I learned along the way is that serial killers, in many ways, are like great white sharks. And they have three things in common. They are both rare, they're exotic, and they're deadly. And isn't it interesting that in the pop culture, they both have their own week that we celebrate through television. There's Shark Week through Discovery Network and Oxygen Network, which is all true crime, has a serial killer week. So isn't it incredible that these two types of predators are actually, in a way, celebrated? 
And that says something about the human condition, why we're drawn to these things, like, like moths to a flame, you know, almost. So my interest in serial killers, this is a long way of answering your question, is both from the perspective of the serial killers and why they do what they do, but also our fascination as human beings with these individuals who are very rare, exotic, and deadly. That's very interesting. So tell me about, I know that most serial killers can be sociopaths or psychopaths. Now, tell me the difference, because some people say that there isn't much of a difference between the two, but I know that you don't believe that and you believe they have distinctive features. So tell us the difference between the two. Sure. It's very common to conflate sociopaths and psychopaths and just use the two terms interchangeably. And it's not just the public that does that. Even so-called experts do that. And some people believe that there is no distinction. I believe that there is. And let's first of all, start with the fact that there's this mis impression or myth that serial killers are are mentally ill. And it is not true. Most serial killers, more than two-thirds, probably 75% or more, fall into the category of either sociopath or psychopath. And according to the American Psychiatric Association, these individuals are suffering from antisocial personality disorders from which there is no cure. They are not mentally ill in the sense of a paranoid schizophrenic or psychotic or something like that. Those conditions are actually treatable. But if you're born a psychopath, and I do believe that psychopaths are born, there is something in the brain that is wired differently so that they are really incapable of feeling the normal range of emotions and responding to things the way that normal human being is. In particular, the the psychopath's brain in the frontal lobe of the brain, which is the one that controls impulses, is almost vacant. There's nothing there. If you look at the mapping of electricity in the brain and you look at a normal brain, the frontal lobe is all lit up. In a psychopath's brain, it looks dead. There's nothing there. So they have no impulse control. That's important. Now, If psychopaths are born, and I truly believe that they are born that way with something in the brain, sociopaths are made. They are environmentally conditioned into this this realm. And so it's nature versus nurture. You've probably heard of, you know, the nature versus nurture. Psychopaths, nature, they are born that way. Sociopaths, nurture, they are environmentally conditioned. And oftentimes they are environmentally conditioned through terrible trauma, abuse, neglect, torture, torment as a child. And as such, these individuals do have similar traits to psychopaths in that they're cold-blooded, they're indifferent to the suffering of others, they are have lack of empathy. But sociopaths actually have the ability to empathize with other living things, and including humans, in some circumstances and not others. So unlike a psychopath who will seem to be just cold-blooded and unemotional, sociopaths actually tend to be rather volatile and emotional and have outbursts of even rage because they can experience emotions. And as such, sociopaths are easier to detect when they come into uh, into your world because they will seem emotional and volatile, whereas psychopaths are just it's like a shark just beneath the surface of the water. And to give you an exam- two different examples, Ted Bundy is a classic psychopath, just completely cold-blooded and indifferent to the suffering of others, actually enjoyed the suffering of others. And the 36 or so women that he killed, he didn't even refer to them as human beings or certainly victims. He called them objects. He objectified them. They were just things for his amusement. Now, a sociopath, some of your audience may be familiar with Eileen Warnos, a female serial killer who was a prostitute and would get in the cars of, of men along the highways in Florida and then kill these men. She had suffered tremendous abuse, trauma, rape, 
horrible misery in her youth. And she was striking back against men who she believed were her persecutors. And she was highly volatile, highly emotional and angry. You can go on on the internet and find video interviews with her where she's just exploding and screaming at the interviewer. So she's a classic sociopath. So there are more sociopaths than psychopaths. They, in fact, sociopaths outnumber psychopaths in the world about eight to one. In the United States, there are approximately one million adult male psychopaths and about eight million adult male sociopaths. There are female psychopaths and sociopaths, but they're fewer in number. Now, not all serial killers are, are psychopaths or sociopaths, and not all psychopaths and sociopaths are serial killers but there is definitely an overlap there. That's so interesting. And I want to talk, you'd mentioned there about females. So it's a myth that serial killers are always men. There are a lot of serial killers who have been women. That is absolutely true. I wouldn't say a lot, but about 15%, roughly 15% of documented serial killers over the last hundred years or so in the United States are women. And that is surprisingly consistent with the number of murderers who are women. So not just serial killers, but all murderers. About 10%, really about 10% of all murderers in the United States are women. So if you look at it, at it that way, 10% versus 15%, women are actually overrepresented among, among serial killers at 15%. But, but again, the numbers are relatively small. But there are very, very distinct and important cases like, you know, like Eileen Warnos that received uh, tremendous attention. Now, one of the reasons that we don't know about the female serial killers as much as, as male serial killers is that the women tend to kill in a much less graphic, gory, sensationalized way. They tend to poison their prey sometimes smother them, you know, with a pillow, you know, or something uh, like that. They're not as gory and graphic and they don't torture the way that, um, that men do. So once again, if you go with the old adage that if it bleeds, it bleeds, the male killings tend to be more sensationalized. One of the reasons that I think Eileen Warnos got all the media attention that she did is she killed like a man. She had a gun and she would just blast the, you know, these men. That's unusual for serial killers specifically. So why did she get so much attention? She killed like a man. And is, do you know if there's any reason why women tend to kill differently than men? It could just be in a, you know, genetic predisposition that women just generally speaking tend not to be as aggressive and violent as men. And certainly there's so, you know, nature versus nurture. Women are socialized to be a little more nurturing and comforting and so forth. So it's probably a combination of nature and nurture there. And you write a brilliant blog for Psychology Today. And I learned from it that serial killers tend to kill randomly, which I didn't know. Why is that? Well, not quite randomly. I mean, they sometimes have a type. For example, David Berkowitz, the son of Sam, targeted women with young women with long, dark hair. So they, they, they may have a type, but... When you say random, I think what you mean is that they tend not to have any sort of relationship with these individuals. Most murders, um, certainly in the United States, are committed by someone who knows the victim. At least two-thirds of the time, there's a relationship between the, the killer and the, and the victim. And in many cases, it's an intimate relationship. You get two people on a Friday night, angry, drunk with a gun in the house, and that's a pretty dangerous place to be, or it can be you know, a very dangerous place. So another myth about crime in general is that most murders are committed randomly or without any sort of connection between the individuals. It's simply not true. That's why that serial killers are an aberration there, because they do kills tend to kill people that they don't know, but have an appeal to them in some way, fit a profile, something that entices them. And sometimes there's a group of serial killers that are known as mission killers. And what a mission killer is, is a serial killer who gives a mission to kill a particular category or variety of individual. 
You have from time to time, there was one out in Stockton, California recently, a guy who killed homeless men. He just decided for whatever reason, he needed to rid the world of homeless men and he gave himself that mission. Sometimes it's sex workers. A serial killer may say, I need to rid the world of, of, of sex workers. All the way back to uh, Jack the Ripper, you know, in London, he preyed upon streetwalkers. So that's a particular type of serial killer. So it's not quite random. It's really more that they're targeting individuals that have some sort of profile or some sort of uh, demographic characteristic that appeals to them or entices them. But generally, there is no relationship. And you, you spoke briefly about your book, and you, for the research of your book, you actually met the son of Sam and also Dennis Rader. So I know that you wanted to meet them to get a bit more into the minds of serial killers. Now, for the audiences who might not be in America, just briefly tell us a little bit about the types of crimes that th those two committed. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. David Berkowitz, the son of Sam, is absolutely one of the most infamous killers, predators, criminals of the 20th century in the United States. In 1977, 1976, 1977, he held New York City hostage as he went on a killing rampage. And what he would do is he would target these women that I had mentioned with long brown hair. Sometimes they were, they were sitting in the park with a boyfriend. Sometimes they were in a car with a boyfriend. Oftentimes they, they weren't alone. So that he would not only kill these women, but sometimes he would shoot whoever happened to be, unfortunately, with them. And he began corresponding with the police and with the media in New York City, calling himself the son of Sam, claiming that Satan was driving him to commit these murders. It created a panic and a manhunt of epic proportions in the largest city in the United States, New York. And he literally held New York City in a grip of fear throughout the summer of 1977, which became known literally as the, as the summer of Sam. And when he was finally caught, and he was a young man when, when, he, when he committed these crimes, so he's been in prison since 1977, still, you know, he's still very much uh, alive. And in prison, he has had what he claims to be as a spiritual and religious awakening. He now calls himself the son of hope. He's become something of a minister. And believe it or not, he's got a global following. He actually has a global following of believers who believe that he is a, is a uh, symbol of redemption and resurrection. And I visited with him and had a, just an absolutely compelling and unbelievable afternoon with him. And the, one of the main reasons that I really wanted to correspond with, with him is he sought attention. He sought publicity. He called himself the son of Sam. I am the son of Sam. He like gave himself a brand name that has stood the test of time. You know, you got Coca-Cola and, uh, you know, among soft drinks and you got the son of Sam among, uh, among serial killers. He gave himself his own media driven, sensationalized brand name that has put him in infamy. Similarly, Dennis Rader called himself BTK, which stands for Bind, Torture, Kill which is exactly what he did with his victim. He would bind them up, he would torture them and kill them. He was also a compulsive, narcissistic attention seeker. If he didn't think that he was getting enough attention, he would contact the media and law enforcement and say, come on, what do I have to do to get a little publicity here? You know, he was seeking it. And that's what I found so incredibly fascinating from a scientific standpoint, these individuals who were not just killing because they had a need to kill, but they wanted publicity. They wanted notoriety for doing it. And so that ties in very much with our fascination with them, hence the book, Why We Love Serial Killers. And I use the term love in a sense of more of the attraction that we're drawn to it, like a moth to a flame. And I realize the irony of the title, you know, why we, why we love serial killers. But I will tell you, I have had people say to me, I love this stuff. 
I'm afraid to tell my friends. They're going to think I'm a freak. They're going to think I'm crazy. But they are, in a way, in love with this stuff. They're just drawn to it. They can't get it, you know, can't get enough of it. So that's why I picked those two particular individuals. And they are two globally, but certainly in the United States, two of the most infamous predators of the 20th century. And they're both still alive, by the way. They're both in prison and they're both still alive. And what was it like meeting them? Because as you say, they're, they're kind of people like that tend to be glorified in the media as being monsters. And how was it meeting them? What were they like? Well, in the case of, of Dennis Rader, I was not able to, to sit down with him. He is in 23-hour-a-day lockdown in solitary confinement, partially to protect others and partially protect, to protect him. So you can't actually sit with him. I think recently his daughter, who has gone to meet with him, and she's been able to sit with him, but the general person cannot. Um, Son of Sam, on the other hand, is very different. David Berkowitz is now in general population. He mingles with others because he's been in prison for so long. He's been in prison since 1977. And he's sort of a toothless tiger at this point is the way I would call it. He, because he, he believes that he has had this religious awakening so he, he, in essence, presents himself as almost like a, a minister and an apostle. He, he said, we must pray together. You know, as, as soon as I met him, I met him in the cafeteria in the commissary in prison, and he does not look anything like, if you, if you Google Son of Sam, David Berkowitz, and you see the young David Berkowitz, he's this sullen, angry, almost demonic looking character. Now, as a, you know, relatively old man, He's not very tall. He's chubby. He's got these big, red, rosy cheeks. He looks like a backyard gnome. And he comes bounding across the cafeteria and gave me this big serial killer hug. I mean, I, could, I couldn't believe it. You know, it was, it was actually very surreal. And then, then, to make it even stranger, people told me, that, uh, the administrators, they said, if you want him to talk, bring a bag of change, uh, coins with you, because you can buy him food. And it's like going to the zoo and feeding the animals. The more you give him to eat, you know, the more, the more he's going to talk. So I took a big old bag of, uh, you know, coins and I'm feeding them in the vending machines, getting them hot dogs. They have hot stuff, you know, hamburgers and French fries and all kinds of stuff. He's packing it away and just and telling me everything. Um, and in fact, he asked me to buy him three bags of Cool Ranch Dorito chips. So remember, I'm an advertising guy. I'm an old advertising guy. And so I'm thinking there's an endorsement here. You know, son of Sam says devilishly good chips. And it was just like this surreal moment. I mean, I, I don't even, I, I don't even know how to describe it, but he did express contr tremendous contrition and remorse for his killings. He said he would do anything to undo the harm that he's done. And he actually reached out to the mother of one of one of his victims, and they were supposed to have a, a connection, but unfortunately, the woman died before that was able to happen. So he definitely expresses this remorse and contrition. And people ask me all the time, you know, do I believe him? And well, I will tell you, I truly believe he believes it, that that this is the case. Um, he says he only wants to do whatever he can to try to be useful from prison, and he corresponds with cancer patients and all kinds of things. People who believe that he is a source of some sort of uh, redemption, you know, as I said, and he doesn't want to get out of prison. He knows it. He knows he'll, he'll never get out. So he, he seems quite, at, you know, at peace. Do I believe him? Well, I, you know, I got a PhD, but it's not in spiritual awakening, you know, so uh, I don't really have the tools, you know, to say, but he is, he's quite believable. If, if he's not sincere, then I'm going to say he's the Daniel Day Lewis of serial killer actors, you know, he's, uh, or the Robert De Niro of serial killer actors, because he's, he's quite convincing. But perhaps the most surreal moment of all was as I was getting ready to leave, and of course he wanted to hug and, and pray again, he says to me, would you like a picture? And like, okay, you know, wh what are we going to do? And out of nowhere, shows up this guy, not, no idea who he was, with a Polaroid camera. They take me into another room. Each of the four walls has a different mural of a nature scene painted on it. One is like, an, is like a uh, mountainous forest area. Another one is a beach. 
you know, with palm trees and, and, and the sunshine and waves, the, you know, the ocean in the background. And he says, which one do you want to stand in front of? Well, David, because we're, we're on a first name basis now, I said, David, let's go to the beach, you know? So here we are, and I've got a picture of it, it's documented, standing on the beach with the son of Sam, look like, like, you know, smiling with arm in arm, like we're on a vacation together, you know? And so the guy takes the picture, hands it to me, and I said, well, thank you very much. And he says, no, wait a minute, that's going to be $2. <laughs> so I paid for my picture. I'm looking at this thing. I said, thank you very much. And I'm walking out and leaving. And I'm thinking to myself, I feel like I've just been to serial killer Disneyland. You know, this is like the weirdest thing, you know, the experience that I've ever, uh, that I've ever had. So my experience with Son of Sam was definitely not scary. It was surreal, but it, it definitely wasn't scary. And do you think that last bit, is that almost like he still wants to almost glorify what he did or make himself seem like a, a very famous figure, the getting the photo and having to pay for it? This is not an individualistic thing. This is for any of the, any of the prisoners, okay? Now, you bring up an interesting point because I thought about this myself. How does this whole operation work? Who's the guy with the camera? Who gets the $2? You know, like I, that aspect of it, I have no idea how that works, although it's a fascinating little franchise, you know, they got going there. But I think the way that Berkowitz looks at it is just, it's normalizing. He's just, you know, he's just a normal guy. Let's pose for a nice picture. You know, I'm not the scary son of Sam. I'm your old uncle Dave. I think he, it, it's his way of just, nor, you know, normalizing the whole thing. Yeah. And for somebody like him, do you think they can change? You know, is, is prison merely a form of containment for them or do you think they can be rehabilitated? For the portion of serial killers, which is more than 50%, who are true psychopaths, meaning their brain is wired differently at birth, they are not able to be rehabilitated. I mean, once a psychopath, always a psychopath. The, the American Psychiatric Associ uh, Association says no cure. Now, they can be managed very well. Like BTK is a, is a classic example. He's narcissistic. He's a control freak. He likes reward-based behavior because he wants to be the best at anything he does. He's got to be the best. So what they've done is they've set up a system with Raider, Dennis Raider, and others that if they accept all the rules and play by all the rules in prison, they will get certain rewards, certain foods that they like, certain treats, things like that. And Raider bragged to me, because he's a, a narcissist, that he has, in the years, he's been in prison since 2005 now, he has never received one infraction. He has, he has adopted and played by every rule. And as a result, he gets his chocolate pudding and his French fries on Saturday, and he's a happy guy. So the, the answer is they can be managed, these very compulsive, narcissistic individuals, but not rehabilitated. Now, Berkowitz, on the other hand, I don't believe is a psychopath. I think what he was, was a very highly emotionally disturbed individual who became obsessed with Satanism, became obsessed with Satan. In fact, he told me that he was looking for some sort of a purpose. And he believed in his upside down thinking that if he killed for Satan, that he would somehow find the purpose in life that he was looking for. So it sounds completely upside down to you and me, but in his world, it was actually rational. It, it made sense. Now, he says he no longer believes that. He knows that he was, you know, had this compulsion and obsession that blinded him. But to the extent that a person can be rehabilitated in the sense that their thinking changes, I think his thinking has changed. But that doesn't mean that I think that, that David Berkowitz should be out on the street. I think he's exactly where he belongs. And if he inspires people with his letters and his books that he writes, he actually wrote a book, Son of Hope. If this is helping people, so be it. What about the staff then? So the prison officers who are caring for them. I mean, serial killers are a very specific type of criminal. And it's very different from working with prisoners who are in for drug-related crimes or petty theft. 
do you know how does it impact them or how do you think it might impact them being around people like that every single day for decades? I have met, interviewed, talked to some of these officers, you know, correction officers in, in these prisons, uh, including a former correction officer who gave Dennis Rader, BTK, his breakfast in the morning. She was assigned, assigned to him. And let's start with Berkowitz. He's in general population now. He's admired, respected by his peers. Many of him are so much younger than him, they don't even know his crimes. They just call him Brother Dave. Hey, Brother Dave, how are you? So the way that the staff and others interact with Berkowitz is very different because he is not in any way a scary um, sort of character anymore. But the individuals who work in these types of maximum security, supermax prisons for, for individuals who are in for life where Berkowitz is and, and Raider, they do become hardened. You have to become hardened because many of these individuals are still violent. Berkowitz is not. Raider is unable to be because he's locked down, you know, 23 hours a day. But many of, the, many of them are still violent. So they do become hardened, jaded individuals. In fact, I'll tell you one little experience that was kind of interesting. I did quite a bit of research. I corresponded with the prison's administration before I went in to see Berkowitz. And they had told me, you're going to be able to take in, not recording devices, you can't record him, but you can take in notebooks and, and pen, you know, things you can take notes and all that kind of stuff. And um, even if you have some files, some papers, you know, that you want to refer to, that's okay. Well, when I got actually got there and I got into the area, this commissary cafeteria area where I was to meet with him, there was a correction officer there who either is or just decided to be that day with me a complete control freak. And she acted as if she had no idea that I was coming, which is not true because this had been set up you know, quite a while in advance. And she very dramatically took my notebook, tore out one sheet of paper and a pen, and she said, this is what you can have. <laughs> so she was a complete control freak herself. This was her world, her environment, and she was going to make the rules. And so, you know, what are you going to say? You're going to say, okay. So I had to write very small on that piece of, you know, that piece of paper because I was there for hours, you know. And I will tell you, these were very grim, stern-looking individuals who were marching through the hallways, you know. So does it have an effect? Yeah, I think it has a tremendous effect. Yeah. And obviously these people aren't getting out of prison, but in a situation where they might be afforded the opportunity to come out of prison, what happens then? Because as you say, if, if psychopaths can't be rehabilitated and they work well on a reward-based system, when they come out of prison, somebody isn't there to reward them every time they behave well. So what happens then? An individual who kills multiple people and is captured and convicted and sent away is almost certainly never going to see the light of day again. So, you know, we don't really have to worry too much about the Green River Killers and the Son of Sands and the Berkowitzes, or excuse me, and the, and the Raiders, because they're, they're just not going to get out on the street again. But it brings up a broader question that not all psychopaths are serial killers. And they're estimated, again, these are, you know, it's, it's very hard to come up with hard data, but it's estimated that perhaps as many as 25% of the adult male population in prison has psychopathic tendencies, okay? Now, remember I told you that the adult male composition of psychopaths in the United States is about 1 million, and the United States has a population of 300 million. So you can see it's a tiny, tiny fraction of the United States that would be considered psychopaths, and yet 20 or 25 percent of, of prisoners. So it shows the disparity there. And I'll take it a step further. We as criminologists know that approximately one third of all criminals become the recidivist. The one that, that it's, prison is like a revolving door. They go in, they come out, they commit crime, they go back in again. So about one third of all criminals do more than two thirds of all the crimes. So 
That's the group that you're talking about. These people who are just violent by nature, predatory by nature, who you really can't do anything with. And if they go in for eight years for aggravated assault and they come out, they're probably just going to commit another crime and go back in because it's inbred, you know, and they don't know any other way. And then unfortunately, and then we can talk about prisons here, prisons tend not to rehabilitate anyway. They tend just to warehouse people and then spit them back out on the street. And often more hardened, more ruthless, and with greater criminal skills than when they went in. Absolutely. And that is the problem. And, you know, some prison officers do a really good job. They want to make a difference. Some prison services, you know, are very active in talking about the fact that they want to be able to do a better job. But if you have somebody, like you say, where they are a psychopath and they're not going to change, it sounds like no matter what work is done in prison, unfortunately, those people, some people just can never change. Yeah. I mean, about the only thing you can do with individuals like that is to find them some useful skill, put their compulsive narcissistic tendencies into something that they're good at, you know, a trade or something that gives them a sense of of satisfaction and feeds their narcissism, you know, which is why with like Raider, the reward-based treatment, because he's this, you know, in his mind, he is the ultimate A student complying with his uh, rules, and therefore he gets all the chocolate pudding and French fries that he that, that he wants. So if you can if you can direct this compulsive narcissistic nature, maybe you can find something that is actually good for society that these individuals can do rather than prey on other people. Absolutely. And I have a question. I found this really interesting when I was reading your blog and things online that some serial killers actually stop killing, but not because they've been caught. They stop killing for other reasons. Why is that? Well, serial killers kill for a compulsive reason. You know, most killings are crimes of passion. And by crimes of passion, I don't necessarily mean that it's always sexually related, but anger as a passion. The number one reason that people kill generally is anger. But serial killers don't kill out of anger. They kill out of a hunger, a need to kill that is only partially satiated when they do kill. For example, BTK is a classic, what we call power and control killer. It wasn't sex per se that drove him. It was the domination and control over life and death with another human being. Just like if you study the psychology of, of criminals, rape may be acted out in a sexual act, but the real drive and motivation is power, domination, and control of another human being. That's the motive behind it, not the sex per se. It's the same thing with BTK. He told me that the ultimate satisfaction was as he was strangling the life out of his victim. And he said, at that moment, when I watched them, the life extinguish, I knew that I was God. Not that I was playing God or I wanted to be God. I am God. That tells you a lot about his sick thinking, this pathology. So it's relatively rare that these individuals just stop killing. What happens is if they get away with it for a long time, and they get into middle aged and you know in their in their fifties you know for example, it's harder and harder to kill. You know you don't have the strength, you don't have the energy, you don't have the stamina. Killing people and getting rid of bodies is not easy work, and so they just don't have the stamina. So they tend to slow down. BTK had these long, long episodes in between his killings, and noticeably, as he killed, the longer he killed, he started targeting older women because they weren't as able to defend themselves. And they weren't as energetic as victims, right? He stopped killing 20-year-old women and started preying on 60-year-old women for for the same reason. So there's, you know, there's somewhat of an aging out almost, but it's relatively rare for them to simply say, I'm finished killing. Because again, it's a hunger inside of them. It's this innate drive, this compulsion. It's like, Whatever your favorite food is, you know, let, let, let's say your favorite food is pizza. And some people say, oh, my God, I, you know, I'd do anything for a slice of pizza. 
Well, imagine that craving times a million and you have the craving that they have to kill and they just can't control it. BTK actually, because he couldn't comprehend exactly what was driving him to kill, but he knew it was there, he gave it a name. He called it Factor X. And he said, when Factor X comes over me, I have no control any longer. It completely takes, takes over. And Ted Bundy said something very similar. And Dahmer said something very similar. In some cases, they themselves are confused and even try to figure out what it is that drives them. But they can't control it. Now, what, one of the reasons that they do get caught, however, is that sometimes they simply get sloppy and careless. There's a, a case, Joel Rifkin, who is not as well-known as Son of Sam or, or BTK or Green River Killer, but he was the most prolific serial killer in the state of New York, the history of New York State. He killed 17 women, mostly runaways, some sex workers, etc. And unbelievably, number 17, he drove around with his pickup truck with this dead body decomposing under a tarp, under, under plastic that you couldn't see, but, you know, covered up to the point that the smell was horrible. He was pulled over by a state trooper, police officer in, on the highway in New York state for um, his registration was expired on his truck, not anything to do with killing. The officer had no idea who was this in this truck. He gets him out and he smells this horrible smell. And he goes back and looks at this decomposing body as, oh my God, Joel Rifkin being the unflappable psychopath that he is says, uh, oh yeah, she was a sex worker. I picked her up in Manhattan, in New York city. Things went bad and I had a killer. Do you think I should get a lawyer? Wow. <laughs> I think the answer is yes there. <laughs> yeah. And so, I mean, think about it. He got caught simply because he got lazy. Wow, that's interesting. And you provide expert commentary for true crime shows on TV. Now, how do you manage to balance, obviously, the entertainment value of that, but also the sensitivities and the complexities of the criminal case and the fact that there are so many victims at the heart of all of these stories, the victim that's been killed, but also their family, their loved ones. How do you, how do you manage to do that? Well, it is a delicate balance, a, a very delicate balance. And, you know, I do quite a bit of public speaking and I actually do a, a one man show that I, I talk uh, for 90 minutes about serial killers and our fascination with this, with serial killers. In fact, I'm going to be performing in Chicago on April 11th at the uh, city winery on April 11th. If anyone is, you know, happens to be in town, um, you can go to my website, docbon.com check it out if you're interested. But what I always say to the audience, you know, as we talk about these things, who's heard of Ted Bundy? And every hand in the audience goes up, you know, everybody's heard of Ted Bundy. And I said, okay, now he's killed at least 30 women. Who can name one of them? Not a hand goes up, right? So we as a society do unfortunately, a much better job of promoting, if you will, these individuals than the victims. So I think it's very important to try to incorporate the victim voice in anything that is done in this, in this regard, because the victims come in many shapes and varieties. Of course, the victims themselves and their families and their loved ones and friends but what about the families of the serial killers themselves? Because remember, the Dennis Raiders of the world, for example, or the Rex Hewerman, who has been charged with, as the Long Island serial killer, and I've been involved in it with that case as, as well, these were family men. They had children. They raised families. They had wives. They had normal-seeming lives. 
Imagine finding out that your husband of the last 30 years is one of the most diabolical, horrible killers of the last hundred years. It destroys people. So those individuals are victims too. People ask me, how could Dennis Rader, how could Rex Huerman's wives have not known that these guys were doing what they were doing? The answer is because they were complete psychopaths and they were able to compartmentalize and totally separate what they were doing as killers with the rest of their lives. They're experts at it. It's because they're unflappable and they don't have the normal emotions. As incredible as it seems, they can kill and then go home and sit down and have family dinner and talk about soccer, report cards, as if nothing had happened. So we have to remember these victims. And I don't believe in the glorification of these individuals. In fact, the ironic title of my, my, my book, Why We Love Serial Killers, is really a critique of society. And what I'm trying to say is, let's recognize that we have this sort of compulsion, and is it really healthy? And should let's take a look at it. Let's take a look at why we seem to be driven to these individuals. Yeah. And the big question then is, why do we? I mean, why does society seem to have this fascination with serial killers? It's a multifaceted thing. At one level, it's what I like to call popcorn entertainment. So how different is a documentary about Ted Bundy than, say, the latest installment of the Saw movie franchise or the Halloween, Michael Myers, you know, there's a Halloween movie every year. At one level, if you sit back and you're watching that documentary or you're watching the movie, it's just entertainment. You know, it's exciting. It's, it's frightening. It gives you an adrenaline rush. So at one level, it's just, it's just entertainment. And unfortunately, that's what normalizes it and treats it as something that is just pure entertainment. Ted Bundy doesn't become real until he shows up at your front door and then he becomes all too real. Take Jeffrey Dahmer. Jeffrey Dahmer has actually become part of the pop culture and has become something of even a joke. There are Jeffrey Dahmer, you know, remember Jeffrey Dahmer was a cannibal. You can buy Jeffrey Dahmer cookbooks, okay? You can buy Jeffrey Dahmer action figures. You can buy uh, board games, trading cards. There's all kinds of stuff out there that preys upon people's hunger for the macabre. But at another level, I think because these individuals do things that are so outrageous and so completely over the top, how do you abduct a stranger, torture this individual, kill this individual, dismember this individual, and then eat this individual? How can anyone possibly do that? So we're empathetic creatures, us humans. And I think we try to understand the good and the bad, particularly the bad, because if I can figure it out, maybe it's not so scary after all. If I can just figure it out, what is it? Why, why do they do these things? You know, maybe it's not so scary, but it's not so easy. It's not so easy to figure out, which is why we then do what we in sociology call reductionism, which is we can't understand Ted Bundy. We can't understand Dennis Rader. So they're just evil. They're pure evil. And then this is where they become Michael Myers. They're just monsters, right? They're these one-dimensional cartoonish ghouls that just become monsters. And that way we can say, okay, I figured it out. They're, you know, they're just pure evil. I don't need to think about it anymore. But that's not true either. And I think that an individual like a Bundy who seems so normal is even more frightening because he could be your next door neighbor. He could be anybody. Anybody could be the, you know, could be the next Ted Bundy. That's scary as hell. And I think particularly for women, women are saying, hell, I don't want to date the next Ted Bundy. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to get involved with the next psychopathic killer. And not surprisingly, 80 to 90% of the women who show up to my talks and, and my shows are women of the audience, 80 to 90%. Women are drawn to true crime. And it's partially out of this, I believe, this need to feel safe 
to identify the predator, to be able to pick them out, to protect themselves. And it's, it becomes these shows of mine become like a cathartic experience where women collectively let out their anxiety and say, yes, this is true. You know, this absolutely is true. And that's part of the draw. The fascination is to try to figure them out, how to avoid it, how to be, how to, you know, not become the next victim. And at another level, I think these individuals set the bar so low. You know, we say to ourselves, I may not be the best husband, the best wife, the best sister, mother, employee, but at least I don't kill and eat people like Jeffrey Dahmer, right? You know, so it allows us to feel okay in our own imperfection. It, it makes us, ah, okay, at least I'm better than Jeffrey Dahmer. Yeah, very interesting. Now, if you don't mind, I have a few listener questions. So I told, I told my audience you were coming on and a few of them have reached out with some questions. So the first one is, what rationality do you think serial killers construct? In order to rationalize their, their, their crimes. Well, there's a myriad of them. But I should start by saying, in the case of true psychopaths, they don't really need to rationalize it. Dennis Rader, you know what his rationalization is? I'm a natural born predator. God created me this way. Yes, he believes in God. God made me this way. I am no different than a great white shark, which is where I got that analogy, by the way, great white shark. And you don't blame the great white shark for doing what it does. So why do you blame me? He's trying to turn the tables and say, how dare you persecute me when I'm just doing what God made me to do? But in, in, in other cases, uh, John Wayne Gacy, who is a very interesting one, the killer clown, he killed approximately 30 young men and boys and committed homosexual acts and then and then killed them. But incredibly, because he's a psychopath, was a psychopath, he also dressed up in a clown costume with full face makeup. He created a character called Pogo the Clown, and he would go to children's hospitals and entertain children. So that's how he would compartmentalize and had different aspects of his life. But when he was asked, John, are you gay? I uh, said, no, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not gay. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a happily married heterosexual man. Well, you, you prey upon these young men, young, teens and, and, and young men, and you, and you engage in homosexual acts and you kill them. And he, you know what his rationalization is? They are nothing but worthless young queers and punks, and they deserve it. That's a, that's a direct quote. So that was his rationalization. Eileen Warnos who killed the Johns, her clients, you know, uh, she would, her rationalization was men had hurt me my entire life. They tortured me. They abused me. They raped me. They beat me. They robbed me. So these guys deserve what they get. So those are just a few examples. Now, in the case of Berkowitz, he was killing for Satan. He had nothing against these people. He just believed that Satan wanted him to kill and he was doing Satan's good work. Very interesting. And somebody else asked, apart from cruelty to animals when they are young, what are other early signs that somebody might go on to become a serial killer? Well, an interesting and frightening thing happens uh, for many of these individuals right around puberty. And it's where harm and abuse becomes connected psychologically to pleasure and sexual gratification. And I'll give you an example. Dennis Rader, BTK, when he was around 10, he was on his grandmother's arm and his, his grandmother killed a chicken for dinner, chopped his head off. At the age of 10, he said, when he saw the blood squirt out of that chicken's neck, he became sexually aroused. And he didn't even know what it was. He was 10 years old. He didn't even know what that was, but he knew that it felt good. So over a period of years, he began to fantasize. He created a fantasy loop in his mind of abuse, harm, torture that would get him sexually aroused. And then he would relieve himself, release himself uh, sexually. He loved it. It grew and built until it reached a tipping point in his early 20s where he could no longer stand it and he had to kill a woman. He had to kill a woman. So there's an escalation, 
but things to look for is certainly harm, you know, certainly harming animals, but even a preoccupation with death, you know, like, like for example, Dahmer would bring home dead animals. He would bring dead animals home to uh, his house, but even signs of just coldness and indifference, if they react inappropriately, inappropriately, meaning what would seem to be normal in that situation, if they don't cry when they seem like they should, or they, or they don't laugh even when they seem like they should, maybe there's a lack, lack of affect there. There's a lack of connection. They're just not, you know, they're not connected. So these are, you know, are certainly signs as well. So yeah, look for indifference, look for, for coldness, look for a pleasure in, in, if they like, if they compulsively like to tease and, and torture animals and, or, and other children, these are all things that are, you know, they're not good. They're not good indicators. Amazing. I personally have one last question for you and feel free not to answer because it's, it's more about your personal views rather than your professional views. But obviously you live in America, you have the death penalty in a number of states in America and it's used in things there. How do you feel about the death penalty for people like this where there's arguments for and against it where some people think we should have the death penalty because imprisoning serial killers for the rest of their lives where they're not going to change, they're never going to get out of prison. It's a waste of the taxpayer's money is some people's argument, whereas other people's argument is, well, it's completely inhumane to take somebody else's life. Do you mind sharing where you sit on that based on your experience of, of serial killers? Yeah, yeah, sure. And, and I'll I'll, I'm going to give you. I'll give you two different reactions. One is more of a scientific, based upon what I know, and the other one is just based upon, I guess you would say, my own morality code. And I'll start with that because it's a little more simple and straightforward. And as I and I just I don't believe in in killing. I don't think any of us has been given the the right or has the right to decide who who lives and who dies. And that includes serial killers, right? Uh, they don't they don't have the right to choose. And I don't think that that any of us have the the, the right to choose either. So that's my that's my take on the um, on the death penalty in that regard. Now, scientifically, there is no indication that the threat of capital punishment, or for that matter, life imprisonment, is any deterrence to a serial killer. They know the laws. They just don't care. These, again, remember, these are not mentally ill individuals in the sense that, they don't, that they're delusional and don't know reality or don't know right from wrong. They do know. They just don't care. So they're going to kill because they want to kill. And no law threat of uh, death penalty or life in prison is going to stop them. There have actually even been studies that have shown when a state has an execution, especially if it's a very well-publicized execution, over the next year in that state and the surrounding vicinity, violence generally and murder specifically actually increases. What we believe happens is that this sends a signal to the, the public that killing is okay. It's all right under the right circumstances. So instead of having the desired effect of deterring people, it seems to have the opposite effect. Now, take it a step further. Remember that most murders are crimes of passion. The most likely scenario where someone is killed, like I said, is, is in the house where, let's say, a husband and wife get into an argument. They're both drunk on Friday night. One of them gets picks up a hammer and hits the other one in the head or grabs a pistol and shoots the other one. Or another likely scenario is two guys fueled up on alcohol in a bar get into an argument over their two favorite teams and who's going to win. One of them punches the other one the guy falls, hits his head, and dies. That's voluntary manslaughter. You know, it happens in, in the moment. They didn't mean to kill, but they died. Still killing, right? Still, it's, it's still murder. Now, in either of those scenarios that I just described, what is the, th the likelihood that the threat of life imprisonment or execution going to do to deter? It's not. It's just not. 
So anyone who uses the defense that we will teach people that they shall not kill, that, that's just not that's just not the case. Now, then the other argument, you know, the economic argument or the uh, might is right argument, you know, that that they killed, so they deserve to be killed. Well, again, I think we play in God. And to the extent that you want to save the taxpayer money, okay. But, uh, you know, that's an economic decision. All right. That's not, you know, that's not a moral decision. That's not, you know, that's, that's based upon, uh, you know, the bottom line, which to me is in different way of, you know, of looking at it and not the way we, we, we should look at it. Absolutely. Scott, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. It's been such a fascinating conversation. So thank you so much for your time. It's my pleasure. Thank you. I really hope you enjoyed this conversation and you found Dr. Bond's insights as fascinating as I did. Don't forget to subscribe to the monthly bonus episode of Evolving Prisons by clicking the link in the show notes of this podcast episode. And as always, it would be really great if you'd please rate this podcast on whatever platform you listen and give it a follow too.